0: welcome to sailing uncovered i'm alec wilkinson and this is episode 25 and we have a very special guest uh, so much so she hardly needs an introduction really um yes she's a british sailor but really she's so famous in the sailing world she's achieved so much she uh, she kind of transcends frontiers really she belongs to us all dame ellen MacArthur. The youngest person to complete the Vande Globe at the age of 24. That was back in 2001. She finished second on Kingfisher, you might remember. Uh, Probably one of the smallest to complete it as well, if not the smallest at five foot two. Uh, And then in 2005, the record for the fastest solo circumnavigation of the Globe. And then after loads more success on the water in 2010, she just gave it all up. And decided to throw herself into two projects. One that's seen her do some remarkable work with young people fighting cancer. uh, And the other that's seen her working with the UN, working with presidents and prime ministers. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But first, Dame Ellen MacArthur, welcome to the show. That circumnavigation of the globe, that record that you got in 2005, does it really seem like, what, 14 years ago now?
1: Not really. You know, it's, it's funny. Sometimes it feels like it was yesterday, and sometimes it feels like it was a lifetime ago. So much has happened in between, but yet the the memory is still really vivid of of in every part of the project. The, you know, the, the raising of the funds initially, the building of the boat, the designing of the boat, the training on the boat, the teamwork. It's it's like it was yesterday. So it's a, it's a weird mix of yesterday and and ages ago.
0: There's been a lot of water under the bridge since. We'll talk about that in a moment, but. Um that voyage led to you becoming a dame, a knight of the realm. Um, d- does it change your life? How does it affect your life if at all, a, a title like that? We have a lot of listeners in um, in the United States who are probably a bit bemused by titles mm. like that.
1: I don't think it changes you at all. I think you know for me, I never did it for that. I never was someone who, sought fame or recognition from sailing i just loved it i just wanted to be on the water and, and out there taking on challenges so it was a a nice honor that came along as a result of the sailing i don't think it need change you in any way shape or form
0: but it um, must it must help you get a restaurant table when you know at busy times and that sort of thing
1: <laughs> i never use it i mean i never. i would never say this is day mellon MacArthur calling but it does it does help you open doors and i yeah. think that's been incredibly useful in ways that I had never really envisaged initially, you know, particularly moving forward with the Cancer Trust and the, the Foundation.
0: Do you think, and we'll talk about the Trust in a second, but do you think things have changed now um, in in the years since you, you, you gave up professional sailing um, for today's sailors who are trying to raise funds, trying to get sponsorship, trying to get promotion, or do you think it's... it's you know, just as tough now as it was back then?
1: Oh, to be honest, I mean, I'm not as connected with the industry as I was. I mean, I used to live it and breathe it and now I spend an, an enormous amount of time well outside that. But obviously I st- still have friends in the industry. I think, you know, in many ways finding sponsorship will always be a, a battle, a challenge. It's often harder to find the funding than it is to, to sail around the world in a bizarre way because with no funding it's just not going to happen. Um, when we started looking for funding for the Vendée Globe and the Route de Rum and the, the round-the-world record attempt, you know, we were lucky to work with Kingfisher, sure. they stuck with me for eight years. Then we moved on to BT with BT T Mellon and you know, it's been an incredible journey but I wouldn't say at any point it's been easy, I mean the success helps of course and I think there's always that element of when you're starting out no one wants to help you because no one knows you and no one's prepared to and then when you're successful more people are aware and it's easier to find sponsorship. Um, I don't know if it's still the same today. I would imagine so. What's
0: your tip for that initial sponsorship when, when you're not known? How, how do you get in
1: there? You never give up. You relentlessly pursue your goal. And it's actually that energy, that, that pursuance of the goal at all costs, really, that will find you the sponsorship. It doesn't just fall on your lap. It's not something that's easy. You have to really, really work for it. And I think sponsors recognise that. I think if you're really pushing and you're really trying hard and you're doing everything you can, not only to train and gain experience, but but to get in those doors and prove yourself, I think they they see that.
0: Um, You gave all that up in 2010. Why was that?
1: Well, first of all, I mean, I never ever thought I would set foot out of the sailing world. It's all I'd ever wanted to do from the age of four. I wanted to sail around the world. and, And all I really did was sail from when I left school at 17 right through to the ran the world record when I was 28. I mean, I I fully, fully, fully sailed. And I I never really thought I would ever do anything outside of sailing. But, you know, I began to realise through the sailing, what it is to have finite resources, what it is to be on a boat with, you know, what you have as being all you have. And I began to think differently. And it was not ever something I was looking for. It's not any, you know, it's not ever been a a goal to do anything outside of sailing but you began to realize that what you have available is finite the global economy is no different and it was like a little thought a tiny thought in the back of my mind you know completely buried by sailing but it wouldn't go away and the more I thought about it the more I had to learn about it the more I learned about global resources the more I realized that we have some pretty fundamental challenges ahead of us and This was now 10 years ago before even creating the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which was the result of three years of research realising that we actually need to change the system, change the way the global economy works.
0: You've touched on the trust. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that. Give us an overview for those who don't know what the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust is.
1: Well, from a personal perspective, it's a huge part of my life. I first sailed with young people in recovery from cancer and leukaemia in France in 2000. Uh, in fact summer 2000 it was and I was absolutely blown away by the courage and bravery of these young people who had been through something harder than I could ever imagine yet had the most unbelievable passion for life that I'd ever come across and they instantly became my heroes, my heroines I thought these were just the most extraordinary people I'd ever met And as a result, I carried 100 of their names around the world when I sailed around the world in the Vendee Globe. I visited many of them in hospitals. I had a relationship with those young people and communicated with them at sea. Many of them came to the finish of the Vendee Globe. Um, That race finished in 2001. In 2002, we created the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust, and our first sailing trip was in summer 2003. And the goal of the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust is to help to rebuild young people's confidence after cancer. Cancer is an incredibly... Um, negative disease it's you know you can be ill and you can have cancer and it really is something which is incredibly destructive when you're trying to grow up as a young person when you're trying to envisage your future and that's suddenly taken away in a way that you could never imagine you just don't ever expect that to happen when you're you know four eight twelve sixteen years old Um, and so the cancer trust steps in at the end of treatment you know, you are incredibly cradled by the health services as you're going through treatment. The doctors and nurses, they look after you, they they um, they they treat you, they are there for your care. And then you come to the end of your treatment and it's okay off with your life, you know, get on with your normal life. And you don't have one because that normal life has been gone for several years through your treatment and you kind of almost don't know where to start and your confidence has been taken away that's where the Cancer Trust steps in the Cancer Trust steps in and works with these young people we take them on four-day trips they live on a boat they sail on a boat they have adventures on a boat and they have this incredible sense of family on board which is phenomenally special and we have you know young people who arrive day one as an incredibly shy um, incredibly um, kind of introverted child and yet four days later Sometimes you can't recognise them. You know they are full of fun, full of life, um, and they've had the most amazing time, which has completely taken them away from what they've been through. And often we get letters from the parents saying thank you for us and our son or daughter back.
0: Um, I, I remember sort of coming on board one of those boats with a, with a camera crew um, covering the story of the charity, really, um, for Sky Sports News and uh, interviewing a lot of those young people. And um, the thing that struck me was just how happy and open they were to talk about the experience because it had been so phenomenal and, and they were kind of filled with this spirit of adventure, which I guess if you've been stuck in and out of a hospital bed for years, um, that's that's how you're going to feel and you you feel a lease of of uh, of freedom but what many people don't realize uh, especially those who haven't come into contact with cancer is that even once you're clear of it it's still with you
1: you don't forget you've had cancer and actually it's not that common in young people sadly too common but still not that common so you know it's not a normal thing for young pers- a young person to have been through cancer and you don't forget it. You don't forget the treatment. You don't forget the years of school you've missed. You don't forget the isolation that you feel. You don't forget the upset that that, that cancer brings to your family because it turns everything upside down. Often, you know, one parent will give up work to, to look after that young person. Um, and the siblings suffer because, you know, suddenly all the attention is on that young person, rightly so, who's incredibly ill and is being ferried left, right and center. It's, it's incredibly disruptive to a family unit.
0: So how do young people get to come on your cruises? call it a cruise I mean
1: (laughs) we're a national charity so we have uh, contacts in every single children's cancer center within the UK and many other hospitals too Um, and the idea is that we work with experts within that hospital it could be a a pediatrician it could be a you know oncologist it could be a click sergeant um, social worker people who know the young people on those wards who can help us to select the people who will benefit the most you know we still can't work with enough young people and um, we've grown over the last 15 years to take more and more young people sailing this year will be over 600 but you know we still only work with a fraction of the young people we can so we try to use those people who are our contacts within the hospitals to select the people who will benefit the most, those young people who will really get something from it. And I think one of the most important things that we've done is not only give young people the ability to come back, which we've always aimed for and always done, but it's those young people who come back again and again, when they reach 18 they can become graduate volunteers. And they then become the adults who help out on the trips with the younger people. And now we're 15 years old, we can work with a young person who was 10 on their first trip and now they're 25, you know, some are married, they have families. And it's wonderful to connect the young people who are unsure of their future, who've just finished their treatment, with someone who can say, I was you, and now look what I'm doing.
0: Now, I'm guessing that when they come on board, um, they they bring all sorts of little personal items because they're they're going away from home. What was the one thing that you always packed on your boat when you went off uh, sailing around the world?
1: I don't think I had one thing that I always took. I know that um, when I went off in the round the world record, I took a big box of mum's flapjack. I took seventy. The record was seventy two days. I took seventy one pieces of mum's flapjack, which is particularly tasty. Um, just to if I took
0: you, mine, it would sink the boat. would <laughs> <laughs> weigh a <your> ton.
1: <laughs> it is heavy, but when you look at the calories that are involved in flapjack, it's pretty good use of space. <laughs> so yeah, I used to take that, and I'd take photos. You know, photos that reminded me of things. I took a photo of Maxine, who was. One of the young people who sailed on the very first trip, actually, with the Cancer Trust. That was there. The, the photo was there. I, I still have it today. Um, so things that have really made a difference in your life.
0: You've written three autobiographies over time. Which one would you recommend? Do they have to read all three?
1: I'd say, well, there's two autobiographies. One was really a journal about a trip. So Race Against Time was just about the round the world record, kind of from day one to day 71. Um the first autobiography, Taking On The World, that was about my childhood, my dream, you know, finding the first sponsor, setting off on the Vendee Globe and further aspirations. And then the second was the round the world record attempt, the preparation for that, and then moving forwards into the creation of the foundation and the circular economy. So they're really the, the kind of volume so one. Are and are all different. Volume two, and they are different, but they're, and they, I suppose they reflect in some ways different parts of your life. You know, I look back to Taking On The World, and it almost fascinates me sometimes to read what I wrote because I think if you write an autobiography when you're a lot older, you have forgotten a lot of the detail. You know, I wrote all that myself, there was never a ghostwriter, and and it's nice to have captured it in the moment. So I I like taking on the world because it was me and I was young and it was kind of fresh and it was raw and it was real. And then the second version is more perhaps reflective. There's a lot of real being on the ocean, record attempt, you know, stress success and the failures but also the reflection and the the shift out of sailing which is a very very personal journey because it's a decision I never wanted to make I never thought I would make I was never looking for and that process of actually deciding that I was going to do this I was actually going to step out of a career in sailing which was very successful when I knew a lot about sailing you know it's all I'd ever wanted to do into a space I knew absolutely nothing about that was a that was a big personal journey.
0: Part of what you stepped out of sailing to do was dedicate yourself to this circular economy. Um, Can you give us uh, an idiot's guide to it? Because it can get quite complicated.
1: I guess the best way to describe a circular economy is to look at the economy we have today. And you could say that today's economy is predominantly linear, in that we take a material out of the ground, we make something out of it, and ultimately it gets thrown away. And we do recycle bits of it, but not by intention. We try and get what we can out at the end. And in a world with finite resources, when we know they're not going to last forever, when we have a growing world population, that cannot run in the long term because you're using stuff up. In a circular economy, you redesign the whole way resources are used in the economy. So you don't use them up, you use them. You make sure that whatever you design, you can recover the materials afterwards. You make sure you can remanufacture products. And you make sure that you can keep products in use for as long as possible. And and ultimately, the three elements of a circular economy are Design out waste and pollution, so make everything work, don't create waste. You keep products and materials in use for as long as possible. So that's not just the product in use and the ability to remanufacture it, but it's also the fact that you can recover the components and the materials from that product and keep them in use for as long as possible. So, you know, product turns into something else because the materials are recovered. And then the third element is one of regenerating natural systems. When you look at materials within our economy, we have technical materials like plastics and metals that you can recycle and feed back into an economy but then you also have biological materials which you can turn into many different products but ultimately they biodegrade and they become biomass and that's the ability to take human waste farm waste agricultural waste food waste food production waste a cotton timber anything that biodegrades and feed it back to the farms to regenerate farmland which we see so little of sadly today
0: well it's a fascinating subject but we're going to leave it there for now uh, because ellen will be back as one of our guests in the next episode episode 26 In which we'll be talking about how the world of sailing can help turn around our environment and our dying oceans i'll tell you more about the show in in a moment but first i just wonder ellen if there's still a sailing challenge or race out there that you'd love to do
1: i just love being at sea i just love being on boats i always have for me it's it's never i mean i wanted to sail around the world because that's the ultimate it's the furthest you can be in the middle of nowhere in the southern ocean i love that whole element so for me it's not about a race it's about being at sea. It always has been, and it always will be, and I miss that hugely. You know, it's a big part of my life that's changed, but but at the same time, I don't have any regrets. I feel that if I hadn't made the move when I made it, then I wouldn't have been able to do what I've done by now, and that was the time that I could open doors to the best of my ability, and I really feel I kind of seized the moment and tried to do that, and as I said, you know, things are never happening fast enough, But um, but what we've achieved in the last nine years with the foundation has been phenomenal – and the work with the Cancer Trust continues. And I'm immensely proud of that. And I'm still massively inspired by the young people who sell with it.
0: Alan, thank you very much. If you want more information on the circular economy, The website is ellenmcarthurfoundation.org and if you want more uh, on the Cancer Trust, it's ellenmcarthurcancertrust.org and we will put those uh, addresses, those details on our Facebook page and we'll tweet them as well. If you don't follow us yet, we are at Sailing Show on Twitter and we are Sailing Uncovered on Facebook. I'll be back very soon with episode 26 on sustainability, on turning around the environment and our dying oceans, really how the world of sailing can do that. Ellen will be with us, Emily Penn will be with us, a whole host of sailors from around the world will be uh, sort of mucking in and talking about uh, what we can do as individuals, as clubs, as organisations, as events uh, to try and turn things around. But that's it for now from me Alec Wilkinson and from Ellen it's thanks for listening bye bye